my most memorable time as a Husker fan would be right after he got out of boot camp and he said, I want to go to see the Miami game. Standing there before the game and the national anthem plays and he's standing ramrod straight at attention and he happens to be sitting next to a full bird colonel and seeing them both stand there at attention. I always try to sing the national anthem when it's played. I couldn't that night. This state runs on Husker football. There's just so much passion to be found in the Husker fan base. The Colorado game with the Alex Henry kick. My grandpa was dying of cancer at this time. He was stuck to a chair for the most part. Alex Henry made 57-yard field goal. My grandpa, like, I could tell he wanted to get up. He still used every ounce of strength that he could to put his hands up in the air and just, yeah! That was his uh, last hurrah as a, as a person living on this earth. No fan base is like ours. That's why they call it. There's no place like Nebraska. Welcome to the Fan Forum, the show where we learn more about Husker Nation by asking the same four questions. Tonight, we're going to double that up because we have the father and son podcasting duo behind the Generation Red podcast, Ken and Scott McCone with us tonight. They call themselves the Kettle Corn of Husker Fan Podcast. You can find them on Twitter at GenRedPod and at ScottGenRedPod. Welcome to the Fan Forum, fellas. What's going on, Bob? Uh, that video there, that was uh, that was pretty cool. That was preseason, right before the uh, the Ireland game, and uh, you guys, you know, what was that? Uh, the the university put that together, and and how'd you guys end up on that? Go ahead, Scott. Yeah, so that was uh, there was a guy on Twitter. Um, I think his Twitter handle is J Lit J Slit something. He works with Husker Media. Um, mm-hmm. Ah, shoot. I thought I had his Twitter right up there. But anyway, so he posted out on uh, on Twitter asking if there were anybody, any fans in the Lincoln area that wanted to be a part of a a Husker fan video preseason type kind of vague uh, request. And I reached out to him through the DMs and he responded. And so he ended up actually... Yeah, yeah, he ended up actually coming over to our apartment and uh, I just asked a bunch of questions and those were the ones that were featured. And, I mean, he did a great job. He did an yeah, awesome job. It, it was a really cool video. And I remember at the time, I was like, I'm going to save this because I knew we were going to do a fan form at some point, probably towards the end of the season and and we're past the season now. And so uh, uh, this is one that's been in, in the makings for a while. I've been looking forward to talk with you guys. Um, before we do that, uh, let, got a little bit of business to go through here, some upcoming shows and some of our uh, sponsors here. Um, the Fan Forum, this is the start of the second season of it, the first episode. And next Thursday at the exact same time, uh, Thursday, December 22nd, going to have Adam Winchell, the co-owner of the uh, Newman Grove City Cafe. You can find them on Twitter at NG City Cafe, keeping the proud tradition of a small town cafe alive within uh, Newman Grove, Nebraska. So looking forward to talk with Adam. Uh, next up is the alumni hall, uh, Redcast bowl pick that we have. Uh, you still have a day. The bowls don't start till tomorrow. So get signed up. It's our pin tweet 
Uh, I think we're almost at a hundred uh, guys in it, right? hundred people in it right now. So uh, get signed up. Uh, we have prizes from alumni hall. We just got the, some uh, pipeline jerky for it now as well. And of course there's going to be red cast swag. So get signed up. Uh, should be a lot of fun. Of course, alumni hall is our main sponsor here with two Lincoln locations, downtown 1120 P street, South point pavilions behind Barton's and noble and uh, pipeline jerky. Uh, go to pipeline dash turkey.com and use code redcast at uh, checkout you'll officially get 10 percent off smack and smooch custom shirt specialty items at smack and smooch on facebook and twitter this is where uh, i've got my shirt and all the koozies and everything that we get and last but not least hail varsity you can go to hailvarsity.com slash subscribe use promo code redcast get 10 percent off your annual subscription so all right guys well oop, let me get over back over to the fan form here what is the fan form? Well, this is a chance for us to ask the same four questions to Husker fans. Why are you a Husker fan? What's your favorite Husker fan memory? Who are your all-time favorite Huskers? And the last one here, how do you think the Huskers are doing next year? We might change this up a little bit since it's so early in the offseason. Maybe a little more of what are your early expectations, at least for next year. But uh, before we get to that, I want to learn a little bit about you guys. And uh, I want to start with a couple of tweets you guys have, and we'll have a chance for you guys Uh-oh. to – yeah. <laughs> You guys like some food, apparently. And and I like, uh, you know, Ken here, cream cheese on a Ritz, perhaps the most underrated snack combo in history. I'm, I'm all behind that. I, I, I'm down with that, Ken. Scott, mm-hmm. not so, I'm not sure what this is. This looks like a, just raw meat between a couple of, you know, uh, I don't know, egos or whatever that is. Uh, so. Uh, <laughs> or Pop-Tart sandwich. Pop-Tarts, that's it, not egos. Yeah, so that image is from Cursed Food Images that I follow on Facebook, and it's just a bunch of really, really terrible-looking food combinations that people put together. Um, And yeah, like that's just one of them. That is not my hand. That is definitely (laughs) nothing that I have done yet, Uh, but I mean... It is what it is, you know? Uh, Yeah, that is a Pop-Tart burger i guess an uncooked pop, one an uncooked popped up yeah i guess you gotta <laughs> gotta get that in the toaster and then it would be good there um well, you know that uh, cream cheese on a cracker i got all kinds of suggestions in the comments uh uh honky specifically uh, you know get some smoked jalapeno pepper jam and ooh. stuff like that which i've done many times i love to buy pepper jellies and pepper jams and stuff like that and use it with cream cheese so mm-hmm. uh, but just the cream cheese by itself with the ritz when you don't have pepper jam you know what? It's a highly underrated snack, and I enjoyed an entire sleeve of Ritz and ate like half a brick of cream cheese. So diet be damned. It was worth Oops. it. <laughs> That's great. Well, let's start with the que- first question then, and it's an easy one. Why are you a Husker fan? Uh, Ken, I'm going to start with you. You're the, the older generation of the Generation Red podcast. You get the first go at this. Why are you a Husker fan? Well, uh, it's about what the program means, uh, for me, what really got me hooked on it was, um, not because I am not native to Nebraska. I was not born and raised here. I was born and raised in Arizona. Um, and I did not discover college football until I was in my early to mid teens. And, you know, all the rage back then was, you know, Arizona state university of Arizona and Arizona in Arizona, or you were a Notre Dame fan. And then I soon discovered in the late eighties that there was a lot of snowbirds that live out in Arizona who were Nebraska fans. Um, so fast forward to about 1983, my best buddy that I used to hang out with all the time was a Notre Dame fan. 
And he was the oldest brother of three. His middle brother, the one that's closest to him in age, used to love to grind his gears by calling it Notre Lame, which was the first time I'd ever heard that phrase. And I always laughed. And he said, you should stop. You should not even worry about Notre Dame, Ken. You should follow Nebraska. They've got the best three-headed attack on offense in the country. And I was like, really? Who? And he said, they call them the triplets. You know, guys named Gill, Turner, Turner Gill, Mike Rozier, and Irving Fryer. I was like, oh, okay. Well, back mm-hmm. then, we got like one dang game on TV. Maybe if it was Oklahoma-Nebraska, usually that was on TV. I honestly do not recall watching the Oklahoma-Nebraska game that year, but I do recall going over to my buddy's house every Sunday afternoon and pulling out the sports section so I could see the box score on mm-hmm. uh, Nebraska games. And I specifically remember like that Minnesota game where we dropped like 84 on them. Yeah, um, And I just read that. And I'm like, shoot, that's got to be a misprint. Absolutely has to be a misprint, but obviously it wasn't. Um, thank God for YouTube, because now I can see a lot of those games. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the first time I ever watched a game on TV was 1984 Orange Bowl. Go for two at the end. I remember thinking to myself, just kick it, just kick it. Let the voters give you a national title. And then Tom Osborne was interviewed shortly after, and he said, I felt that if you're going to win a national title, you have to win it on the field or you don't win it at all. And that made me a fan for life. Um, mm. So the reason I'm a fan is because of what the program stands for, which is winning everything on the field, winning the right way, and uh, being respectful of your opponent. So I just, I this program has been in my soul ever since that ball was tipped away from, was it Jeff Smith, I think was the target on that two-point conversion? Jeff, yeah. Kenny Calhoun um, was the defender for uh, Miami that knocked Calhoun. it away. That's the that's the first season that I remember from start to finish was that '83 season and mm-hmm. and it's a heck of a first season as a fan to to come into being a fandom because of of what a special <laughs> yeah. year it was to be number one throughout and to have a Heisman winner and Outland and Lombardi winners have the number one and number two picks in the draft have the number one pick in the NFL uh, the USFL draft and yep. it was just an amazing team and you kind of think oh every year is going to be like this Scott you've come into being a Husker fan in a different generation where what you didn't necessarily have that season, but what were those early moments for you when you became a fan? What, what about rush, what years would that be? And, you know, how was Nebraska doing at that time? Yeah. So I was born in the summer of 1994. And so basically by the time I became a sentient human being was right around the two thousands. And mm-hmm. I have vague early memories of cheering and yelling and frustration and excitement, but I just preferred to stay away from loud noises. So um, <laughs> it was it was probably the early 2000s that I really started to maybe sit down and watch a quarter or two of football. But then I'd get bored and I would scatter off and do whatever, you know, like seven, eight, nine year old kids do. And then right around the time that Bill Callahan got hired. I remember my dad was super frustrated about his hiring. And that made no sense to me because prior to my dad complaining about it, I was watching NTV news and there was some description of him and blah, 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 NFL coach, blah, 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 went to a Super Bowl, blah, 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 blah. And in my young adolescent mind, I'm sitting there thinking, well, he's got to be a good coach. I mean, NFL is is better than college so going to college must obviously in my 10 year old or however old I was yeah 10 years old 10 years old that 10 year old brain was like well he's got to be good and then something about yeah hearing the name and Dominican Sue and 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 
hearing these these names and my dad talking about recruits and talking about this form website that he's on something about it just like it just interested me because i'm like my dad is hyper fixated on all these things like i i knew it before but as i'm starting to get older i'm starting to realize that this is something that he just lives for and i love my dad and and i always looked up to him so i was like well of course i've i've got to start paying attention to this and so I started to force myself at grandma and grandpa's house to watch football games. I'm like, I'm going to sit and I'm going to watch these things. And meanwhile, while it's not football season or whatever, I'm sitting in the basement. I've got our little analog TV and I'm watching VHS after VHS of national championship games and, and bulls and whatever VHS recordings my dad had of TV recordings and all this stuff. And and slowly but surely, I found myself actually watching the whole game and then getting really passionate about it. And then probably by 2006, 2007, right around the time that uh, that Bill Callahan was on thin ice, I, I was bought and sold. And as far as I was concerned, I had that childlike innocence where I'm sitting there thinking like, we could still win a national championship with these teams. Yeah, we keep losing these games, blah, 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 blah. But I just had no idea that there's a lot that goes into winning a national championship. And so I had this childlike, rose-like glasses thinking that this is the year we go back to a national championship year in, year out. But then reality kind of smacked me in the face by the time I hit, like, you know, however old I was. Well, I mean, about that time, thirteen. yeah, if you're talking at the end of the the Callahan era, then you're kind of coming into your Husker fandom right at the beginning of Pelini era, which is the closest thing that we've had in recent time of being close, right? I mean, every every year winning nine or ten games and postseasons, three conference championship games in seven seasons and two conferences. So, you know, we're, we're close in some regards and we're far away in other regards, you know, but it's but it's the best of, of what we've had, at least in the recent recency times. And even Pelini now is getting farther away. Um, you mentioned uh, that uh, this is something your dad lives for here. And I want to show these tweets here. Uh, this was uh, from a couple of weeks ago. This is the the Matt Rule press conference introduction and everything. Uh, you know, uh, I could tell your dad lives for it. He he was that's uh, his wife. That's your wife, <laughs> Wanda, and you and me sitting next to each other. Uh, watching the press conference on the big screen there in Memorial Stadium. Uh, we went down to uh, the the east side of the stadium to welcome Coach Rule. And I, I've got this little video here of uh, Coach Rule throwing out some footballs. <laughs> He threw out five footballs, and as you can see from this photo, Wanda was the lucky recipient of one of those. Uh, Ken, I believe that's already uh, in your house somewhere, right? Probably in a, yeah, it's in a curio right cabinet right or something somewhere. My head. Oh, it's right behind it's really you there. Yeah. <laughs> right behind uh, my head. That was, that was a cool day. That's, you know, for me, that's one of those days. Why are you a Husker fan? It's it's we own the, the program as fans. That's what I feel like. And it, and it felt like it was the proper thing to go down there on a Monday at noon, walk over and, and uh, to welcome the new coach in. And we had a great, 
crowd. There was hundreds of people there and, and cheering and it was a, it was a lot of fun. And it's, it's those moments that always give me that, that glimmer of hope that we're going to get this thing turned around and, and get it going again. Um, let's go to question two. Sure. What is your favorite Husker fan memory? We'll go the opposite direction here this time. Scott, we'll start with you. Your favorite Husker fan memory. Well, uh, as you had kind of uh, put into the intro for this Husker fan forum, um, one of my all-time favorite memories was, yeah, like I said, it was 2008. It was the end of the season. uh, And that was one of the hardest years in our family's lives because a man that we cared very, very deeply for and still care so much about to this day, my grandpa was very sick with cancer. And, um, this was one of the, it was the last, the last, uh, football game that he got to watch. And it was the 2008 Colorado game with the 57 yard field goal and the, destroying of was it blaine gabbert was that was he still uh, it was Co- uh, hawkins uh, oh the, hawkins cody yeah, hawkins coach's son. yep yeah yeah cody hawkins and dominican sue just stripping the ball and going for a touchdown and i've never you know i've seen my grandpa really really excited for a lot of football games but there was something about about that field goal and about the conclusion of that game that mm-hmm achieved a different level of, of excitement. And I think it's cause he knew, I think it's cause he knew that this was the last football game. He was probably going to get a watch aside from, you know, maybe, maybe something, but um, so that was, that was definitely a very significant memory for me. Um, that was really mm-hmm. what, what kind of pulled on my heartstrings to a degree that I had felt before. Um, and I, you know, I, I would say that, yeah, he, my 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 passion for Husker football definitely lives and breathes through the spirit of my grandpa, hundred percent. So well, that's a, that's a great that's a great tribute there, and that's and that's a great game. I mean, I think all Husker fans would hope to if that was the type of game that all of us went out on. That's an amazing game to do it. I mean, that's a that's an all timer there. Um, Ken, your favorite fan, Husker fan memory? <laughs> well, first of all. Uh, my absolute favorite Husker memory, just in case my wife is watching, is the fact is her as a Nebraskan moving to Arizona in 1988 and us meeting two weeks later. And the mm. fact that that gave me a leg up on all the other single guys in our singles group at church. So <laughs> here we go. That's my all time favorite Husker memory is is meeting my Husker that I am married to. Um, but I have two of them, if that's OK, when it comes oh, to games, it's fine. hard to separate the two of them. Uh, The first one being, obviously, the Orange Bowl where Nebraska finally gets the monkey off their back. They win. Uh, And both of these memories actually involve Scott as well, which is so fitting because, you know, without him, there is no Generation Red podcast. So um, 1995 Orange Bowl, we finally get the monkey off our back. Scott was about five months old, sleeping in his playpen, which was like, oh, 10 feet away from the easy chair that I was in. Now I was fairly calm for most of the game because for most of the game, <laughs> we weren't doing all that well till about midway through the third quarter. I kind of got excited after the two point safety. And mm-hmm. then that first Schlesinger touchdown happens and I jump out of my chair and this primal inhuman scream. Yes. <laughs> came out of my mouth. That was so loud. Startled Scott woke him up out of a dead sleep. And those 
terror-filled eyes that were looking across the room at me from the playpen <laughs> uh, didn't uh, dampen my spirit at all because <laughs> <laughs> there was two more plays that I did the exact same thing while his mom was holding him over her shoulder and patting him on the back to try to keep him calm because his father mm -hmm. was being a maniac. Um, so that was that's my first one. Obviously, getting that monkey off our back and winning that national championship and doing it with two fullback runs up the middle. I mean, it just doesn't get any more perfect. Um, and then the second memory would be part of that video that you showed at the beginning, uh, that 2014 Miami game with Scott. Um, he had just mm -hmm. graduated Marine boot camp, and I bought some tickets from a friend, and he said we wanted to get there early because they were going to honor the 1994 team. It hadn't even occurred to me that it had been the 20th anniversary and of all games, why wouldn't it be the Miami game? So it was perfect. Uh, sit there, you hear the tunnel walk, or you see the, you hear the national anthem, like I said in that video. Impossible to sing along with it because I was pretty emotional. Uh, just, you know, seeing my son and, and a lifer colonel in the Army standing side by side and honoring their country at attention uh, was just unbelievable. Um, and then you get the 94 team come out to their own tunnel walk. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and they come out and I remember looking at Scott and go, there they are. I mean, it was just a <laughs> reverence for me, you know, and then, and then they do the tunnel walk again. And then the team comes out mm -hmm. and uh, all the, all the players from the 94 team were along with the band making that tunnel as they come out of the tunnel and they're all high-fiving and dabbing up and all that kind of stuff. And it was just, and then Amir goes off for 227 yards and Duke Johnson fumbles and Josh Mitchell returns at like 60 yards for a touchdown. The place was coming apart at, at the seams. It was the loudest game I've ever been to, mm -hmm. bar none. And uh, it just, it sends goosebumps up my spine from beginning to end. I, I almost remember everything I was feeling on every mm -hmm. play if I watched that game again on YouTube. It's just an amazing experience. So that's, those I, are my thoughts. I think that was the the largest attendance game in Memorial Stadium history. It was like one of the it got into like ninety two thousand range. It was it was just crazy. And I've got a question for you, Ken. And this goes to the ninety five Orange Bowl, the the first one you're talking about there. Um, were you ever comfortable at the end? Did you ever like? For me, I I literally until Kareem Moss catches that interception on the last play, I still thought Miami could throw a ninety yard touchdown on fourth down. I mean, I just it, we had lost yeah. seven straight bowl games, and there's going to be some terrible luck or some Miami magic. And were you ever comfortable, and or was it until it got to zero 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 on the clock? I was literally. Was it? Were we tied at seventeen seventeen when that Miami receiver was wide open going down the left sideline? And it was a blown coverage, but cost him yes. because he was getting pressured, so he had to let the ball go early, right? That was mm -hmm. we were so tight. And I was like, oh, as soon as that happened, I'm like, hey, maybe this is it. I'm still wasn't mm -hmm. comfortable. I mean, that's a damn good question because I I don't think I was comfortable until it hit zeros, until Tommy mm -hmm. took that second knee and I saw his hands go up, and I know he said <laughs> something to sap across the line. And I'm pretty sure we probably shouldn't repeat it. Uh, but I thought that was pretty, pretty poignant. And uh, I, I love that Tommy doing that and just staring right at the oh. Miami defensive line. That was beautiful. One um, year, almost to the day after that Florida State game, which was, you know, what a great back and forth game that was. And Trev mm -hmm. Alberts, the current athletic director, you know, huge game, three sacks on, on Charlie Ward with one arm, basically. Um but but we didn't pull it out. And I mean, it was the it was the unfinished business that the the '94 team uh, mm -hmm. took care of. And what a great moment too there for 
any of the fans we've talked to, we've had some fans now on the fan forum where that was their intro into football for the Huskers. You know, they were about that age where, you know, 94 was the time and that's a great time to be coming into being a fan too. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Scott, I wanted to show you this. This was a tweet that you posted from us and we're talking about some of our favorite fan memories. We've had great memories on the Redcast. We've got to go to, to uh, the Hill varsity club and do a couple live shows. And you mm-hmm. guys have been always so amazing and so awesome as friends and just supporters of us. And here's a, a tweet. You, you guys were, were there, you brought your wives and, and uh, live shows are the best. Go big Redcast and and all of us, a photo of us there. And we appreciate it so much that you guys came down and, and hung with us. That's some of my favorite memories that I've had as a podcaster, because at least as a podcaster, starting in in uh, spring of 2017, we haven't had a lot of on the field great <laughs> memories during the, the Redcast, but we've had tons of great memories to meet people and 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 have a lot of fun. And, and those are certainly some of the nights. So again, we appreciate you guys there. Well, you know what? No problem. But I mean, you guys have, have have sounded like from the minute I started listening to your to your show, even back in 2007. Actually, I started in 2018. And mm-hmm. in the glutton for punishment that I was, I went back and listened to all of your 2017 coverage for the season just to get a feel for the show and all that kind of stuff. And it sounded like four friends talking to me on the other side of my radio. And uh, and then lo and behold, we meet you guys. And it's like meeting friends I'd already known. Because we're in the podcast space, right? We all do this. Mm-hmm. We all love Husker football, and there's just that. And when you try to cover it with at least some sense of objectivity and love as a podcaster, it just it's so much easier to get bonded to other people who do this as well. And absolutely, dude, anytime you're somewhere live, we're absolutely going to be there. Um, so yeah, it's absolutely <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, Rob's a. Rob's on the, the production side of the show posting stuff there. So <laughs> I might even cupped butt cheek. I don't remember for sure. But, uh... <laughs> I think so. Well, well, that's that's the red cast. And of course, that's what we're on. But uh, this is a good chance before we go to question three. Tell us a little bit about Generation Red podcast. And uh, it, as you mentioned, we have there's a great podcast network out there of Husker shows and, and great fan ones. And 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 I mean, I, I, I don't even want to start naming them because there's too many and I'll, I'll forget someone. But um, I, we love promoting other shows and, and we love, cause we're all in it for the same thing. And I think generation red podcast is a great show and I think you guys have a great story. So tell it. Well, um, it was something that I started listening to podcasts in like 2017. I was working at Hornady at the time I'd run out of music library to keep listening to, and you can only do so many Spotify playlists before they start repeating themselves. And I said, well, I'm going to see what this podcast thing is all about. And I started downloading one that was, it was second amendment related podcast. I absolutely loved it. And so I was like, well, sure. There's content of all kinds of podcasts. Certainly there's Husker stuff, right? So I did Husker podcasts and holy smokes, the results, (laughs) you guys were right at the top of the results along with like the media ones and whatnot. I subscribed to anything and everything I could. And I started listening. Then I got back out on the road as a truck driver. And I just, it was kind of going through my mind. You know, this would be fun. Scott and I always sit around the Thanksgiving table and talk Husker football every single year going into the Iowa game or whatever game or or the Colorado game back in the day. And uh, I was like, well, yeah, this would be kind of fun. So I approached him about it. So what did you think about doing a, a Husker podcast sometime? He goes, oh, that would be awesome. And so we decided to start in 2012. <laughs> and then COVID happened and we were like, nah, let's just chill on it and just work and practice and do some practice shows, which I don't even think I have any of the video or audio from those anymore. I couldn't even release them. I've got, I've got the one from post Minnesota okay. in 
2020. I still have that audio on my cloud. We might have to and release that awful. if we get popular enough that people have. But it's only my on, side. But... It's only my oh, side. So you just hear me. Weird. You just hear awkward silence for about <laughs> seven minutes, and then it's just me talking for seven minutes, and then just repeat over and over. <laughs> I, I remember yeah. those well. We did. We started off with that too. So, and then, well, yeah, I do remember what are your memories, Scott, of doing that. I just remember that there was a. I want to say it was an Iowa game, which has always been terrible for the last seven years. Um, I I remember I was sitting in in uh, Grandma's basement, and it was before the game or something like that. And you and I hadn't even talked about a podcast yet. It had been something that had been brewing up in your mind, and it was something that was brewing up in my mind because I yeah I found Husker podcasts uh, right at the beginning of the Frost era because I was like I just want to consume all Husker media all the time because i was just super stoked about it and so yeah i found a bunch of podcasts and my dad actually is the one who was like hey check out the go big red cast i'm like oh yeah mm-hmm. they're like the top result i don't know why i never downloaded them but um so for like the whole year year and a half or so i just was like man this would be kind of fun i mean yeah like my dad said we just we just shoot the crap all the time and just talk about it for hours and my sister just sits and listens and you know yeah just it's all we do so i mentioned to him i just was like man, it would be fun if we did a podcast. And my dad just kind of like double takes at me. And he's like, I've been thinking about that for a while now. And it was just like, wow, this is awesome. And, but I just kind of just said it just passively, like wasn't expecting anything to come from it. And then, and then dad was like, were you serious about that? Like, was that a, was that a thing you wanted to do? And I was just like, I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know anything about audio, but you know, whatever I can sit and talk. So if I've got a mic and I've got a computer, I mean, that's seems pretty simple enough. Well, my dad's done all the research and I've basically just run, run my suck the whole time. But, um, yeah, no, it was just something, it was something that was always on my mind. I mean, I, I, I love Husker football and I'm down to have a good conversation about really anything. Um, and our niche is uh, perfectly placed because we're both huge Husker fans, and so it just mm-hmm. it naturally made sense. It made sense, and then, and then I think that I think what kind of sold us was just kind of like the, like, well, what do we have to offer? We don't know anything. We're not X's and O's guys. We never played football. We've never coached. We don't know anything. Like, what market value do we even bring to the table? And it was like, well, I mean we're a father and a son that's kind of unique and i was like yeah yeah i guess that'll do um mm-hmm. and so that was kind of the you know the 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 thing that i think tipped me over the edge was like well i'm down to talk forever but i at least want somebody to listen if it's just one person like that's fine enough for me but i at least want to have something that's worth listening to and i i don't know i think i think i think one of the things that that made me really really think that it was a good idea was the fact that i think that husker fans are first and foremost family you can meet husker fans anywhere and you Mm -hmm. really have a bond when i was in the marine corps as soon as i found somebody who was a husker fan we'd sit and chat for like you know anywhere from five to 30 minutes you know it it was pretty Mm -hmm. crazy and i was like well if there's a family dynamic just from people you don't know i'm sure anybody would be interested in listening to a a you know a double entendre family so father son husker fans that's mm-hmm. relatable well so, and you guys do and you guys do crossovers with the cuz cast too and that's a whole another family of guys that, that 
that uh, you know get involved there too. And it's it's yeah. it's a fun dynamic, and you have people that know each other. And I think you're so right too. When when Husker fans get together, one of the things I love about sports, and you go to a tailgate, and a tailgate with ten people, and they've never met each other before, but they're they're all wearing Husker stuff. And the next thing you know is that that's the thing that's the common denominator that brings them together in sports and Huskers bring people together. Now these people they don't they may not know the first thing about each other you know politically or religion or all the the hot topic hot topic buttons that you want to stay away from. They may not know about any of that stuff with each other but it doesn't matter because they found that thing that 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 unites them. And that's the thing that I love about Husker athletics, Husker sports, it unites us. Um it's the thing when sometimes on Twitter, when I see Husker athletics divide people, I, I really hate that. And I really try to fight that is when you see mm-hmm. it be a, a use of, you know, when it's any kind of division, it shouldn't, should never be that way. It's, it's, right. it's there to get us together. And the, some of the best moments winning or losing the best moments are when I'm around Husker nation and I'm talking with Husker fans. I love doing shows like the fan forum and, and talking with guys like you, and uh, we've had chances to 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 get to know each other. I mean, here I got to show another tweet here. This one is, you know, Ken and I. That uh, was about a month or two ago at Jake Cigars, and and uh, I got to tell you, it's I'm not a young chicken anymore. And uh, that next that next morning, I didn't even hurt. I don't even smoke a cigar or anything, but just being around it, like I woke up the next day and my eyes were hurting. And I was, of course, I drank like three old fashions too. So, um, but you know, I was just like, oh my gosh. But it was a, it's a ton of fun. So it's been great to meet more Husker fans like you guys through the podcast, through this world. And uh, and the goal of the the Redcast and the goal of the fan forum is to use Husker football as a, as a means to unite people and uh, to get more of those connections. So so this is a that's a lot of fun. Here. Well, let's let's go to, to question number three here. Mm-hmm. And who are your all time favorite Huskers? We'll go back to Ken here. We'll start with you and then go to Scott. Holy cow! You, you uh, how long of a list do you want? <laughs> Look, <laughs> you know, so many. I, I, gosh, I can't remember which which person I asked on the first. I, maybe it was a, oh, Paul Jacobson, the Husker tapes guy, and he, uh, <laughs> he, he went down. I mean, he had a list of like twenty. So if you can beat him, I'll give you the record. Maybe that's the thing. Instead of like just <laughs> picking one, we'll see who goes the who yeah, goes the longest. You know what? I, there's so many names I wrote down that that I just couldn't in good conscience say they're my favorite favorite they're just guys i remember because they were so memorable mm-hmm. uh, but i did narrow it down to five but i'll just throw okay. out the names that I, I i did throw like like starting in the 90s i mean the 80s i loved a lot of those guys but you know it's hard to follow the team on in the paper except for bowl games right so you really don't have the opportunity to fall in love or really follow guys until you get to see them live in action so uh, Tommy Frazier, of course, I loved the Weebacks, Derek Brown and Calvin Jones, Lawrence Phillips, mm-hmm. Amon Green, Scott Frost, Eric Crouch. You had all the guys from the pipeline, Zadiska Boys, uh, Joel Wilkes, Zach Wiegert, Brennan Stye, Aaron Graham, Eric Anderson, Chris Dishman. I just remember these names like, you know, I, I just started vomiting names under a piece <laughs> of paper, for, for lack of a better term, you know, and then you throw the black shirts in there, you know, like, shoot, I've been doing podcasts lately with Kenny Cheatham, which is an absolute blast. You know, uh, mm-hmm. here's like him and Vedral and Reggie Ball. Scott gets his hair cut by uh, Riley Washington, as well as one of my other sons. You know, you got Bobby Newcomb, uh, Muhammad, who was so instrumental in that 94 national title. Matt Davison, without his catch in 97 at Missouri, we don't win a title in 97. Mm-hmm. Uh, Esther Johnson, I mentioned him because I just love that smile of his. And, 
damn it, I sure wish that when his son decommitted from Iowa, he came here instead of went down there to Ema. But oh well. Um, <laughs> then of course you have your black shirts. When we switched that four three, and that's when Trev Alberts came to the forefront in the country. Lombardi Award winner, you know, uh, Dwayne Harris, Dante Jones, Grant Wistrom, another Lombardi Award winner. Uh, Jared Tomich, who was a walk-on, I believe, a gray shirt, yep. kind of a partial qualifier back when that was still cool. And then once he got his grades up, he got a full scully. Uh, Mike Rucker, Kyle Vandenbosch, John Perella, Kevin Raymakers, the Peter Brothers, Terry Keneally, Steve Warren, uh, Ed Stewart, Phil Ellis. I mean, just the list goes on and on and on. Um, so I had to narrow it down to five. <laughs> and the ones I came up with, number one for me of all time is obviously Tommy Frazier. Can't mm-hmm. not have him number one. I mean, without him, you don't win back-to-back titles and have a chance at three in a row without his performance in that 93 Orange Bowl. Um, Lawrence Phillips is number two, because I don't think I've ever seen a more talented person running the football than that guy. As good as Razier was, Phillips had something different. Uh, Just wish he would have had his head on straight. Grant Wistrom is number three, um, mainly because of his effort, not just on the line of scrimmage, but if you remember that 94 Orange Bowl or that 95 Orange Bowl, whatever it was, uh, almost every punt, it seemed like Wistrom was one of the first guys down there to hit the guy who caught the ball. Um, Talk about effort. And then, of course, number four is Ndamukong Sue. And then I was really struggling with number five, and I had to go with Terrell Farley because he really changed that 95 defense once he got his head on, figured out the defense, and they could throw him out there for most of the time instead of starting. I can't remember. They started McFarlane, I think, at the beginning of the year, and then Farley ended up winning the job. So those are my top mm-hmm. five. That's a great – well, it's a great list. <laughs> it's a great top five. <laughs> Scott not- – How about you? Yeah, so because obviously I'm of a different generation, I have a little bit lesser of a pool of guys that I specifically remember. Um, I actually have like a really, really bad memory, um, especially during those early years, because like I said, there was kind of a lot of pain involved with witnessing a lot of Husker seasons lots of losses and and i tend to disassociate when i am upset about things and so i i I developed a very good skill of forgetting um when we would lose games so i it would all get convoluted and weird so um these are just some names that i remember cheering for a lot growing up and then there's some that i obviously more notably remember um i just have a list of 10 I originally had a list of five or I actually originally had a list of like 15 and then I shrunk it down to five. And then, then I was like, you know, let's just bring it back up to 10. So number 10, I got uh, Roy Hellu. I mean, top, I mean, in, in my, in my lifetime, there's three running backs that stand out. You got Roy Hellu and all these guys are on the list. You got Roy Hellu, you've got Rex Burkhead and you've got Amir, uh, Amir Abdullah. So mm-hmm. those back three are on my list. Yep. Yep. It was, it was, I mean, gosh, I wish I would have appreciated it more at the time because I just assumed you just always had a bell cow. You always had that guy Mm -hmm. that you could give the ball and he'd run almost a thousand yards, if not more a season. That's just what I expected. And wish we could have that right now, but uh, bubbly water. And so, yeah, those are the running backs. And then Number one, we'll just get that out of the way. Cat out of the bag. And Dominican Sue. I mean, there's just no. I I I asked myself the questions watching Dominican Sue. I'd ask my dad this. I'm like, 
is Indomitian Sue really that good or am I biased? Like, is he really this good? What I'm witnessing right now. And dad was like, uh, yeah, he is unbelievable. And generational. Yep. Generational. Absolutely generational. I mean, people from all fan bases know who Indomitian Sue was. He was that great. You don't, you don't remember defensive linemen, you know, on a regular basis. There's some greats that you can think of over the last few decades, but I mean, he's right up there. He's topped off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on top of that, I remember, like I said, to, to go back to what I said earlier, watching my dad talking about recruits and whatnot and, and him talking about Indomitian Sue, I could not wrap my mind around that, that phonetic language. Like it was just like Indomitian Sue, how do you spell it? And then when you show me how to spell it, it's worse. It's like, okay, that's, <laughs> That's I don't even I'm I'm like 10. I don't even <laughs> comprehend this name. Um, but yeah, so number one is Indomitian Sue. And then I remember Levante David. I remember Demario Williams. Demario Williams was the Levante David before Levante David. Yep. Um, and then best quarterback that I can remember. I could say Taylor Martinez, but just for longevity and consistency. Dude, Joe Gans was the man. I love my myself some Gansey. Like he mm-hmm. he was he was my generational quarterback. Like he was such a reliable guy and and still holds like top stats of any quarterback that we've had aside from COVID, you know, asterisk thrown in there. Um but yeah, and then I've got, you know, Nate Swift and Jordan Westercamp and uh I did throw the other running back that I always I always had a soft spot for and uh that would be Brandon Jackson. I always thought he mm-hmm. was he was really fun to watch. Um and then Larry Asante. So I kind of went all back and forth between like, you know, top top guys, but I those are just some names that I remember screaming at the TV like, "Oh my gosh, this is amazing." Um I guess before Sue, I do remember screaming in the uh in in the uh in the living room yelling rude. So I do mm-hmm. remember rude, um, but that's kind of more of an ancient memory, um, more of just like a ritualistic memory more than it was an actual vivid memory. But mm-hmm. yeah, those are just some guys that I remember watching growing up. Um, uh, yeah, just, I mean, I could name off a bunch, a bunch more, but those are guys that I just, I distinctively remember imprinted in my mind. Like there's like Larry Asante, holy crap i was screaming that dude's name for like two years straight so mm. um yeah well in Dominic and sue i was at the game against texas in the uh the big 12 championship game down there in dallas um and i've never seen a more dominating game by one player against a team of that kind of caliber i mean it's one thing if you're going against a you know an fcs team or something but i mean that was the texas University of Texas offensive line that he was just dominating single-handedly. And there's always a, there's a tweet that Brett Ciancia from pick six previews, he'll post it every once in a while. And it's a, it's a tweet of Indomic and Sue against the defensive lines of like Alabama, Florida. And there was like one other school that season, maybe Texas was the other one. And his, his stats mirrored, if not, it were better than some of the stats of the entire defensive lines of these other schools. I mean, that's how dominating he was. And at one point in the season, early in the year, because he had had a number of pass breakups, he was even charting in, in some defensive back categories for pass breakups. Yeah. I mean, it was just insane. He, I, I've never seen a player 
he basically allowed you to do so many things on defense that you would typically never be able to do if you didn't have a guy like him. Uh, number one, number one was the dollar defense that Bo Pliny uh, rolled out there. You know, everyone knows what the nickel is, five DBs. Everyone knows what the dime is, six DBs. The dollar defense was seven defensive backs, not a single linebacker on the field. And mm-hmm. that looks pretty dumb if you if you don't have the you know the, the guys in front to do it. But Sue would be making plays that a linebacker would make. So he almost he could mm-hmm. fill so many different gaps in, in in addition to filling two or three gaps, actual gaps. So yeah, it was uh he was he was transformational, and that was back when we were going to championships, and that's where we want to yep. get to. And I think this is a good segue to the fourth question, which is the one that takes the longest amount of time to answer because it's we don't know the answer to this yet, and that is. You know, how do you think the Huskers will do next year? I, I'm going to, because of it's so early, there's a lot of change going on. We don't even know what the full staff is yet. I'm going to kind of alter this one for this show, at least specifically, to more along lines of what are your early expectations for next season, for Matt Rule, for this staff, for this offseason? You know, where are you guys kind of at right now, just from an ex- expectation standpoint, what you're looking for? And I'm going to start with you, Scott. All right. So, my expectations is that we are probably going to feel a lot worse before we feel any better. Um, we're going to see, we're going to see Matt. I, I don't want to say mass exodus because in the, in the grand scheme of things in the transfer portal, we're not even breaking top 10 of players leaving. We're not, I don't even think we're mm-hmm. in the top 25 of players leaving. Yeah, like Miami so, and some of those schools have had. Yes. Tons so, of yep. Turnover right now doesn't look too too bad, but I do still think that come next season we're going to see a lot of new faces. Mm. We're going to see. I mean, we're already going to see a new defensive scheme, um, and I just have a feeling that we're gonna we're gonna still be in a lot of pain next year. My expectation is we probably still don't go to a bowl game. And and my reason for expecting that is because I mean that's that's kind of the mo of rule his first season at Temple and his first season at Baylor. Granted, I'll give him I'll give him the exception of Baylor when he only has like forty five scholarship players, but his first seasons going into anywhere isn't necessarily a, a wow factor. So I have no reason to expect this time to be any different, um, and I'm okay with that. Like I'm not trying to sound nihilistic or or a Debbie Downer glass half empty like. No, like that's just a reasonable expectation in my mind. And I'm okay with that because that's what I've seen for, you know, five years straight now. So mm-hmm. going into the next season, if we go four and eight, all right, fine with me. As long as I can start seeing the foundation being laid, what I expect to see are some changes. We might not win games, but I hate to say this. I hate to say the damned statement, but I, I want to see some moral cultural victories that's what i expect to see i expect to see more discipline i expect to see more consistency i expect to see more leadership and honestly i expect to see guys just sitting down shutting up putting their nose to the grindstone and doing what they're expected to do i expect the swagger to go down a little bit um i i I really if i if i were to say i hope for something i really hope that our guys can humble themselves and and not talk like they're going to go out and win the Big Ten championship year in, year out, because we've heard that for five years straight. And I think if there's anything that I can correctly judge about Matt Rule is I don't think he'll tolerate that. 
I don't think he's going to want that in his locker room. He wants guys who are just going to literally, quite literally think game to game. There is no, we're Mm going to go win it all. We're going to be the greatest, best team ever. I expect them to be disciplined, quiet, and carry a big stick. Um, So that's, that's what I'm expecting. I'm expecting pain. I am expecting pain, but I think it's going to be a little bit different of a pain. I, I think it's I think it's going to be one of those things where you're a parent. I'm not a parent. So if there's parents listening right now, you can shoot me. I'm fine. I, I'll, <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. But I, if there's anything that I know about parenting, and, and I think I'm right on this, is that sometimes the most important thing you can do is is watch your kids make mistakes and allow it to happen because you know that growth is going to come from that. And I think this season, my mindset going into it is like, you know what? Take all the expectations off. Let's let the child make mistakes. Let's let let's let the bad things happen, and let's learn from them as a fan base. So that's that's my expectation. I expect myself to be a little bit more humbled. I think I, I was a little bit more realistic with, with my expectations going into this last season, but my expectations were seven and five, um, and so that was still a little bit too much. So. I think I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep cranking those numbers down, and I really hope I'm wrong. But realistically, I just <laughs> expect uh, I, I just expect um, I expect a slight shift, just a slight, just an ever so slight shift. Well, I think one of the, the interesting things to me is a lot of what Trev has talked about in the press conferences, the one when he fired Frost, the one when he was announcing Rule where he really laid out a lot of the, the changes, I think, that from a culture standpoint that he wants within the program. You know, when you mentioned about, you know, not not talking big right now, I mean, he he said some of the exact same things back then. He talked about, you know, let's stop talking about winning championships right now and let's start focusing on the things that that, that win championships. Let's focus on the things that, that you have to do, and it's the day-by-day grind. And, um, you know, I, I think that you can have two different things. You can have an expectation for the, the program, and that's big picture. That's macro. You know, the the, the expectation I have for the, the University of Nebraska football program is to play for championships, to win championships. That's an expectation I have at a program level. Mm. And then you can have your expectations at a team level, and, a, and that's a year-by-year thing. And sometimes that's based on who you have coming back or what your schedule looks like. And, you know, all, you start to break it down and – my expectation for this team is not to win a national championship or even to compete for the championship. It's, it's to, you know, lay the foundation for future teams to, to build off of. And so that's something that they can do and they can do it day by day. And I, you know, I'm going to, what I'm going to kind of focus on as we get into our off season, I'm going to talk a lot about the importance of getting the six wins. Um, not, I'm not making any guarantees or anything, but I think it's really important if they can do that in year one, I think that would, that would, show a lot to a lot of fans there to, to get to a bowl game. And if that means six and six, it's six and six. Right. And I've plugged my nose at that in the past. I've, I've changed in that regard. I mean, right now I, you know, if that's what it took next year, Oh my gosh, you know, that'd be an unbelievable first season for rule. Mm-hmm. Um, Ken, how about you, man? What, what are you uh, looking for your expectations and, and, uh, and even your kind of your grades of what you've seen from rule so far in the, the short few weeks that he's been the head coach. Hui, ah, boy, that's such a loaded question. Um, yeah, because because we do, what we know is what we don't know at this point. We we know we've got Matt Rule, 
We know he's hired a coaching staff that many of them are not experienced in handling Power 5 competition. That's what we know. What we don't know is what that's going to turn into. Mm-hmm. We know Matt Rule likes the kind of guys that he's that he's hired. A lot of these guys go back to him all the way back to Temple, like Coach Ed Foley, who's been coaching for a lot of years, and now he's finally getting a Power 5 gig, and Rule obviously trusts him. I expect this uh, – let me just preface this by something I heard on another podcast. Uh, former offensive lineman Sam Hahn was on another Heard At Sports podcast, No Block, No Rock. Mm-hmm. And uh, he mentioned when they were asking him about Donovan Riola and why would Rule have retained Donovan Riola. And his, his response was, well, there was a lot of philosophical – friction between Mark Whipple and Donovan Raiola when it came to pass protection in Whipple's schemes. And it was tough mm-hmm. for Raiola to get his kids to to pass pro like Whipple wanted to because it just didn't fit his philosophy. So we already knew that Donovan was kind of coaching, either was inexperienced and now I guess was probably coaching with one hand tied behind his back. So my expectation, number one, coming out this year, is I expect to go into that Michigan game and have Anthony Grant see a big-ass hole on that right side and absolutely truck Ernest Hausman. That's my first expectation. <laughs> oh, boy. He's a Husker, always a Husker, whatever. But um, <laughs> uh, I, that one stings. It just does. Hey, you can't blame the kid for wanting to do something different, but no, that's my first no. expectation. And that's just a, in a larger scope of I expect the line of scrimmage to be better. It yeah. may not be awesomely better but i expect it to be coached better i expect the defensive line to be better i expect them to actually be able to move a little because the strength and conditioning is probably going to focus more on flexibility and movement from what i understand is kind of can can i can i give you a little insight on that yeah go ahead that was last week in the the pipeline jerky uh went down to alumni hall and uh there were several the, the former players there one of them was kevin williams who entered into the transfer portal since i've talked with them but you know, he we talked about strength and conditioning a little bit, and he mentioned um, he mentioned Zach Duvall, and he he wasn't crapping on his former coach or anything. He was he was very complimentary, and he said, "Look, Duvall got us strong. There was no doubt about that. We were strong, but the what the new guy is doing with 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 the flexibility, the kinesiology, I think it is, and, and the a focus a lot more, less weights, less weight, more reps." working some different muscles than they've worked before. And I'll give you an example of where I think this can play into. And I'll even give a former player that we just mentioned quite a bit. Think of Nash Huttmacher right now, nose tackle. Nobody's stronger than that dude. I mean, but if you watched that one, uh, I think it was against Wisconsin, they did a, a quarterback sneak, and he got blown off the ball probably five yards into the end zone, and they, mm-hmm. scored, a, they scored the touchdown. Okay. It's not a strength issue with, with Nash. Whoever the, the blocker was for Wisconsin that pushed him back five yards, if they got in a fist fight or wrestled, Nash would tie him in a knot. You know, I mean, Nash would be that much stronger, right? The strength yeah. is there, but the low man wins in, in the trenches. The low man, they, they win on the offensive line, they win on the defensive line. And what it takes is I think we're going to have to reshape some of these bodies. I think Nash Huttmacher could be an amazing 3-4 nose tackle if he can get some of that flexibility going and the guy that I'll reference, and I'm not saying he's as good as this guy, I'm not trying to make a comparison, but in Dominican Sioux, if you go back on YouTube, go and watch the 1997 Colorado game, the last game of the Callahan era, 
where we score 50-some points, but we lose because we give up 60-some points to them. And look at the defense back in 2007. And Sue was he was overweight. He was big. He was large. He was three seasons into here. He was already a redshirt sophomore. And that guy, you would never have looked at him and said, oh, that's a future pro. You wouldn't have. Philip Dillard was 270 pounds, and they had him with his hand in the ground. They were trying to make him do some kind of blitzing, weird defense alignment thing. He was overweight, right? So James Dobson gets in here, the, the, the new strength coach for Pelini, and they start working on flexibility. And they get Prince of Makamara and some of those DBs, and they go, these guys are stiff. They can't turn their hips. And they start working that the whole offseason. And by the time we got to spring ball, I go to the coach's clinic and I see Indomitian Sue just five months later from that Colorado game. And I'm looking at him. And I'm like, he looks like a different person. He lost all this weight. He almost looked skinny in some, you know, in some areas. And then mm-hmm. they kind of rebuilt him. And the guy went from being, I mean, you never would have thought he'd, he'd even start, you know, the next season, let alone anything. And then next thing you know, he's dominating. That's what I think that strength and conditioning, you know, we talked about Rayola. I think strength and conditioning and changing up what they're doing and adding some of that flexibility to these linemen, some of these big, big, strong linemen that we have. It'll be interesting to see what that does on both sides, offense and defense. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to steal your thunder, Ken. Keep going. Keep going, buddy. I love that. The reason I had had brought that up, Honky, was because I had heard your your recent show and I heard some of those insights you got from the offensive linemen. And Mm -hmm. that was always was the first thing that hit my mind when I was reading that question earlier and trying to put my thoughts together. And – the other thing I expect is realistically, I expect Matt Rule's first year uh, win loss record to be better than his first year win loss records were at Temple and Baylor. Number one, mm-hmm. disadvantages at both. Number one, at Temple, it's Temple. Nobody really won there very yeah. often. It was one 10 win season the entire history of the football program before Rule got there. Yep. Um, so then the he had two of them. <laughs> Yeah, and he had two of them his last two years, two of them in a row. And then in Baylor, of course, he went in with one hand tied behind his back because he had 45 scholarship players. Oh, yeah. yep. um, so I expect him to be able to do better here because I think there's enough guys here that are good culture guys that will stick around, that have enough talent that uh, if we can reshape the bodies, like you said, we can get a little more flexibility, a little bit more movement out of these guys up front. You can make a case that, for me, realistically, four and eight, five and seven if we did that again this next year another four and eight year but it looks different um we just don't have quite the horses Mm -hmm. yet or we don't quite have the depth yet that's okay that's coming um and i expect to see a lot of different names on the back of those jerseys that are going to be starting that's Mm -hmm. you know so four and eight and five or five and seven i'd be happy with if we end up six and six and go into a bowl game Holy cow and hallelujah, there'd be no reason why not to expect us to be contending for the West by the by 2024 mm-hmm. if we manage to win six. I'm, I'm, I'm blueprint. You go you you don't go to a bowl first year, go to bowl second year, next year, all bets are off. Mm-hmm. Right. That it's gonna be my my mantra for the offseason. And this is different from you know, this Rob last year was 12 and 0 and all that good stuff, right? And here's the thing. Dave, all Redcast Dave, all last offseason was like, just get to six and six, just get to a bowl game. I couldn't do that. I can't do that in year five of the Frost era. Six and six is not something I'm aspiring for in year five of that era. But in year one, year one, oh my gosh, I think I'm calling it the race to six. Can we get to six wins? And, you know, 
do you do you do a Lance Leipold? You start off five and one and end up six and six. I don't care. It get to six somehow. Is there a way we can? Does it take six weeks? Does it take twelve weeks? Anywhere in between. But um, that that would be my that's my my inside my own head kind of goal. I wouldn't you know I wouldn't don't expect the team to sit there and say yeah our goal is just to win six games. I mean that's not that's not reasonable or that's not what I would expect them to think. But for me that's that would be just such a, a, an unbelievable immediate sign of progress. And, you know, I think you brought something up, Scott, with like the, how much the, the pain of losing some players, I think, which is a natural byproduct of coaching transitions. And I, I sent out a tweet today where I think I was referencing Ernest Hausman and there's some, it's a very small minority of fans, Husker fans that give players grief on Twitter when they leave. Okay. So it's a, such a yeah. small ridiculous small minority i almost don't even like to mention them but they're very vocal though <laughs> but they're very vocal right and look it's a painful byproduct of coaching transitions is that you, you're going to lose some players but we're never going to get back and i do that in the quotation marks we're never going to get back to where we were on top until we can get some consistency continuity and longevity out of our coaching and yeah. that we what that what does that look like in, in real tangible terms we have an eight-year contract right now for our coach I'd like to see a coach live out the, the terms of their contract. And, I mean, I think it's a really, really, really good sign for Nebraska football if Matt Rule is the coach at Nebraska in eight seasons when this contract is hopefully by then already, you know, he's extended. had many extensions added to it. Mm-hmm. That would be a great sign because we haven't had that in a while there. So, um, but no, that, that these are this is the discussion I want to have. So, Scott, I think for you, for you, did you have something that you wanted to add? Yes, that I think, yeah, it starts at the coach. And then I think that my expectation from this program moving forward is, I mean, it's the rule blueprint developing guys. I mean, Mm -hmm. rule has rule is probably the reason why NCAA implemented the hidden gem recruiting uh, uh, aspect of of NCAA football 2014, because that was what he was good at. He was good at finding those guys that aren't even rated in the top 2,500 in mm-hmm. us in 247 sports and turns them into absolute ballers. Maybe not draft picks, but dudes that are going to consistently be there for the entire program or for the entire their entire scholarship. So just like you said, having a coach that sticks here for his entire contract, I think I think what I expect to see is is a lot less turnover in the player realm of things. Uh, yes, the portal giveth and the portal taketh away. Mm-hmm. But if we're somehow in the in the 90th percentile of turnover rate, where we're not where we're not turning over as many guys to the portal, I'm gonna I I would expect that from a rule type of football team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, well, I think that's that starts point. to create that that consistency, Ken. Yeah, that's that's a great point, Scott. Because one of the things I've noticed too is I've seen some people on uh, on Twitter kind of discounting some of these players that have committed who were previously unranked, had no stars next to their name until until they get an offer and they accept a scholarship, and then boom, they're a three star. Well, a lot of these guys either a couldn't afford to go to some of the camps that are sponsored by some of the recruiting services, or b didn't get invited by the schools that hosted them. And mm-hmm. to me, these are the kind of players that are going to want to play for a guy like Matt Rule because he loves the underdog. He loves the guy that's got a chip on his shoulder. 
and nobody has a bigger chip on their shoulder than an unranked recruit. And man, these guys he's bringing in here. Do you see that linebacker that's coming this weekend? Six foot, 295 pounds or something runs a 10, eight, 100 and had 180 tackles last year in Texas. Football. Oh yeah. I can't that's remember what the guy's name was. going to play with a chip on his shoulder. If he gets an offer and decides to accept it. And, okay. and somebody that hopefully comes in here understanding it's probably going to take me a couple of years, a couple of years. Yeah. And, and that that's not a bad thing. You know, nope. there's a love hate relationship. I think a lot of Husker fans have with the NIL and transfer portal world. And mm-hmm. for all the right reasons, it's the rules of the game, so I think Nebraska can be better than anybody else at it, and I think it's a, and, a, a differentiator I, for us. I I look at it like I look at it like this: there's a natural law in human nature to want to try and find the grass that's greener on the other side, yeah. and so there were all of the guys who were riding the benches in the early 2000s and the 90s. Those were transfer portal guys. Those were guys who would mm-hmm. who would have gotten up and left if had they gotten the opportunity, but they were locked in. And so I really see it as these guys have always been around the nature. It's not just a generational thing. I mean, yes, I do think that generations that are slightly younger than me have less patience and less of an attention span, but that's an all entire different discussion. But I do think that there are those types of personalities that just that when they get the chance to go see if the grass is greener on the other side, they're going to take it. Now that that Mm -hmm. now that those doors are open, I mean, those guys are going to leave anyway. And the guys who stay and and stay for four years, those guys who did it in the 90s and early 2000s pre-transfer portal, those guys still exist. You just got to find them and you got to build and you got to build the character. The guys who want to go to a program that's going to develop them are going to go to a program that's going to develop them and they're going to stay. And you got to give them reasons to want to stay, too. Right. I mean, Nebraska's given enough reasons to, to a lot of the players that have transferred over the course of the last few years. A lot of times you can point back to a time where it's like, well, I can see why the guy did. I can see why Ernest Hausman did. I can see it, right? Good coaching and good culture and all that can lead to players not wanting to leave. And mm-hmm. and I think that's something that that's part of the building blocks of everything you talked about, Scott, that your expectation for this offseason is start building those blocks, start building the right you know, doing the right things. And we've said this for so long, but where we were, where we were wrong is that I'm not sure that we knew that we were doing the right things, but if you do the right things and you do them long enough, good things should happen. Um, We thought we were doing a lot of the right things for the last four or five seasons. Of course, then changes happen. Then all of a sudden you find out all the things we were doing wrong. And that's kind of a natural, that's natural (laughs) after there's change. Right. But, but I think one of the things that is different, for Coach Rule this time around versus uh, Baylor and and um, Temple is the transfer portal is NIL. That is when you talk about trying to flip a roster for that first off that first season, he has tools in his belt this time around that he didn't have when he only had forty five players at Baylor. When you know he has ways to build a roster faster. But I think from a development standpoint, what development looks like today is get those kids in January, get them in here, get them into the off season. Yep. Um, I, 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 I worry with the guys that transfer here in May and in June after spring, after all the off season workout stuff, you know, it, even like Oshan, I loved Oshan Mathis, we, but getting them here in June and July, it's just, it's hard for those guys to acclimate that fast and then be dominant players the way that you want them in, in, in August. But I think if you can get them here in January, you can do a lot with them. Um, yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, Especially, yeah. 
got to get them here as early as possible anymore when it comes to being a developmental program. Mm-hmm. I thought you guys had a great conversation. I was watching you guys on Sunday night, the show you guys did, and you guys are out there on on YouTube. Go watch that show, Redcasters uh, at Generation Pod, uh, and you guys had a good discussion. And you were going through all the coaching staff, and Rayola mm-hmm. is an interesting one to me because we had Dave from Husk Guys on last week when I when we did the match rule one, Mac and I, and he kind of like it was weird. He broke it essentially live. He's on a on a text chain with the pipeline guys with with you know offensive linemen. And the ch- and during their their text chain, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, Rayola's the coach, and he just says it live on air, and it's like, oh, Rayola's going to be the coach. And then about thirty minutes later, you start seeing it on Twitter. It was like it started getting announced by rivals and all that that Rayola's the coach, and we're like, yeah, we we apparently just broke it right on our right on our show. But um, That's and awesome. so it, it gave us this opportunity, and and without any preparation we weren't thinking you know preparing for it it was like oh, okay real real is the guy and is that good is it bad all that mac had his questions about it and very legitimately mac started going down the list he's like well geez real wouldn't have been probably my top three or four coaches i would have retained and you know you, he was thinking through mickey first before all that happened bush Applewhite, and all that my thing with real and i want to get your guys' thoughts on this you guys had some of this discussion too on on sunday night mm-hmm. i th- I think the guy, first off, I think he must interview awesome because he, he's won two coaches over in two straight years just with, I think, from a philosophy standpoint. But I, I was so anti-Whipple's offense. The X's and O's of what we did, I think, just set us up so poorly at times. And the things – and you sit, you hit on something, Ken. Mm-hmm. The, the things that the offensive line or the things that a coach, a position coach is supposed to do is – Make your team, make your players more disciplined, better at what they do. And you hit on the the amount of penalties, the, the fewer penalties they had this year versus a year ago. And that's a that's an area where I think a, an offensive line coach can have a, a real effect on how the O-line plays. Mm-hmm. He can affect the X's and O's. He, for the most part, that's not. The O.C. is the guy doing that. So every time I, I think of Turner Corcoran, the guy who starts at our left guard, then goes to our left tackle once uh, Prohaska gets hurt, and then when Whipple likes to do his unbalanced line, he takes him and puts him at the right tight end. And this is what, you know, and I'm sitting there going, I'm not sure that, that Rayola is sitting there going, yeah, that's what I want to do with my, my tackle. I want to move him all around here to five different spots. But he doesn't really have a choice in that. He's just the, he's the O-line coach. So you do the best with the situation you're in. And mm-hmm. I can look at a lot of things that he did last year, and I actually think Rayola did a pretty decent job, all things considered. But it gets masked with a really horrible horrible X's and O's game plan from, from week to week that I think set the O line up for a lot of failure. Now I think I'm alone in some of that discussion sometimes. Cause I say that and people back away and they're like, well, yeah, but they look, they look terrible or we didn't have a big running lane. I'm like, it was a, it's an awful, it was an awful run scheme with very little deception in the backfield, very little two back, very little. And when the times that we would line up under center, like the first play against Minnesota, where we get in a, a traditional old a set, we just ran it right at him, went for 20 yards then you just take all that away and we don't do it again. So right. that's me setting my, my narrative, my table. I just want the discussion <laughs> there. So somebody take it. Well, yeah, I think, I think the discipline thing had to, had to be first. And I think that's like right at the top of rules list as well. Discipline football team, um, tough football team, physical football mm-hmm. team. You have to have all three of those, especially on the line of scrimmage, I think to be successful. And if you start and you get that discipline down, which was the, 
God, it infuriated me in 2021. Every single time it seemed like we'd break something fairly big. We were getting momentum. Boom. You'd have a, you know, a holding call or a false start when the play was set. It was going to be yep. a great play, but there was a false start or something. We're like, like you've mentioned numerous times, Honky, you, you know, two straight false starts uh, in the game against Oklahoma. And we still end up going down the field, but we miss a field goal or whatever it ended up mm-hmm. being. Uh, but it's like you can't have you can't play behind the chains. So at least this team, when it came to penalties, didn't play behind the chains. Unfortunately, like you said, the X's and O's I think handcuffed Riola and what he really wanted to do with that offensive line. And I think Frost at least intuitively knew what to do to at least run the football while we were still while he was still here. While he was still uh, here. So <laughs> well, think, I'm, think I'm back. in wait and see mode. I'm literally yeah, think- in wait and see mode on Raiola. Maybe we'll see a complete difference and a complete shift in the way the line plays. I'm thinking some of the techniques and strength and conditioning will change. Mm-hmm. These guys, as tall as they are, like Zadiska has said on your show and said on his show, a dude six foot nine, it's almost impossible without good flexibility to get lower than the guy across from him. Because as he said on your show, low man wins. If you can't get low yep. at six foot nine, you're going to get knocked backwards. I mean, <laughs> we've seen yeah. it. It was so bad looking like, I can't remember what game it was, but some defensive lineman blew off the ball and hammered Ben Hart dead in the chest. And he goes backwards doing this. And I'm like, it had to look, it had to be so embarrassing because this is a ginormous human being looking like a windmill out there because he got absolutely blasted off the line of scrimmage. Mm-hmm. And because he was high, he wasn't lower than the guy across from him. And that, I think... No doubt he was probably the strongest guy. I bet the guy across from him was not as strong as he was because of the way Duval trained him with the weights. But, man, that flexibility just wasn't there. So I'm hoping that changes, especially on the O-line, yep. D-line. I yep, expect that- 2020, 2023 to see stalemates at the line of scrimmage as opposed to both sides of the line of scrimmage going backwards. Mm-hmm. That's what I expect. And, and I think that's a good enough start just from a, just from a, a, a one-on-one O-line versus D-line. And then when you start to add scheme into it, that's where you can start to open some holes too. You know, when it was probably the most, I mean, Frost said it literally right after the the Northwestern game where he goes, that's about the most uncreative offense that he's seen. He calls his offensive coordinator out right away after game one. He wasn't wrong. Now he's also the head coach, so it's not exactly the way to do it. But yeah, I mean, when you, when you have a one back with three wide receivers and, everything's shotgun and it's just a direct handoff and the quarterback doesn't do any fake or anything. You better have the, you know, the, uh, the, the Washington Redskins lines of the, the 1980s to, you know, if you're going to be, you better be that darn good. You better be the 94 Huskers. If you just think you're just going to push guys around without any of the other deception or any of the, the other things. And, you know, I went and watched the Oklahoma game in person and every play Oklahoma had guys in motion going sideways. There's so much deception. There was all this. You're you're a linebacker, and you're having your eyes have to be so good. And I'd watch a team play us. I'm like, you don't have your eyes don't have to be good. You know what we're gonna do. And mm-hmm. and I thought that it put the O line in such bad position sometimes. Now the O line, then the second I would defend them, then the next play there'd be one play where the guy gets destroyed, and it's like I can't defend that. That's a you know bad technique, <laughs> or just you know the guy gets beat. But but there were other times. There are other times there's a, a, a third and short against Purdue, and and it's one of the few plays that Casey pulls the ball out and, and runs it. And guess what? It, go, it goes for six, seven yards, and it should have gone further except a wide receiver misses a block, not the O-line. But it's like – so, I mean, I would break these plays down 
And there's there were so many times where it's like, ah, oh, the O line's terrible. And I'm like, that that wasn't even an O line issue on this play. <laughs> you know, so right. But but again, I'm a, I'm also an apologetist apologist for the O line, and uh, and uh, and I come off as that sometimes. I I, I understand that too. And, and and there were issues, and there's some things that have to get fixed. And I mean, there's some personnel that have to be fixed. Uh, Scott, you yep. haven't talked. Yeah, I tend to be more contrarian in my nature um, mm-hmm. and looking into our O-line, re-watching a lot of film, or I guess just YouTube clips because it's not film, but mm-hmm. technically speaking. Um, I I have a hope that we start to see those little things start going in the right direction. Um, if I were to play... Uh, you know, angel on one shoulder and devil on the other. The angel on my shoulder looking at our O-line right now is just giving the guys the benefit of the doubt that they've been poorly coached. Some of those guys have been poorly coached since they've got here, and some of the guys are just young and and are immediately bad, uh, badly coached. And I, the only way that I can possibly like put it in reference to where I can empathize with it is is that. So I'll write lyrics, right? I'll write lyrics. I finish like a whole song. I'm like, this is great, except for that one blemish. I don't really like it. But I've sat there and practiced the song for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Well, then I change that one line, that one line that makes everything come mm-hmm. together. Well, then I'm sitting there trying to recite the song, and my brain's just telling me, say that old stupid line over and over again because it's the way I wired mm-hmm. my brain to think. And it takes – a long time to create a different neural pathway for me to have that muscle memory per se of, mm-hmm. of memorizing that technique per se that I just now changed. And so if I'm giving these guys the benefit of the doubt, it would be the fact that yes, you've got a whole season, you've got a whole off season, you've got all these things. You've got a whole year with, with Donovan Riola training these guys but when it comes down to a big, scary dude staring at your face who wants to kill you, sometimes that muscle memory just kicks in and and, and you and, and all that new technique that you spent one year learning versus the two and a half, three years that you learned something mm-hmm. else. I mean, if I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, you know, maybe that's just their their old habits kicking in. And that explains why we saw such inconsistency on our line. You would see mm. them do the right technique one play and then absolutely catastrophically mess it up the next play. And you just scratch your head and you go, why is that? And my analytic brain goes, well, it's got to just be that bad muscle memory that takes a long time to 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 discipline mm. out of your mind. Well, you know, one way I think and I think you're hitting on something here. One way to get that muscle memory beat out of you, the, the bad muscle memory and the good. It's the in practice. <laughs> physicality and practice. Yeah. Think of our tackling on, on defense. If you equate it to tackling on defense, our tackling on defense got better as the season went on when they started to introduce tackling into practice. It got better. It wasn't great by the end of the year, but I mean, literally they were, you know, four weeks into the season and decided to start tackling. Um, you got to start doing the right processes at some point. This off season, I'm very interested in, very interested in, how do we practice? How do we do physicality in practice? You know, yes. the offensive line, how much ones versus ones do we do against the D line? Cause that big, you know, strong, scary guy, like you talked about the, here's the one thing I don't want the offensive lineman to go up against their first big, strong, scary guy 
when they're playing against Minnesota. They should be playing against big, strong, scary guys all offseason and, and going against those guys and, and building that muscle memory in real football situations and practice. I yes. brought this up over the years, and, and now I'm really going to double down on it because I think that we might see some of this here with Rule. And I've been I've been beat up a little bit on social media and stuff. I brought up green jerseys, quarterbacks with green jerseys. Oh, honky, you can't do it. Stop it. That's that's old school stuff. You can't do that. I don't know how you can have a true quarterback competition if you've never taken the green jerseys off. And I'll tell you where, where that comes from. I went to those coaches' clinics from Solich all the way through the first couple of years of Frost. And I've said this on the show a couple of times, so people have heard this, but I was at the, the two-hour, 200-play scrimmage that Callahan had after the 2004 season where Joe Daly stepped into the practice as the starting quarterback, and by the end of it, Zach Taylor walked out the starter. And you could tell it over the course of two hours and 200 plays, live bullets. Defense alignment like Jay Moore and Lakeven Smith and Titus Adams and Adam Carricker hitting Zach Taylor mm. full blast, destroying him, but he'd get up, get into a huddle. There were refs on the field that were you know watching the clock, and, and he, you had to get a play called out, one of those West Coast offense plays that had 80, 82 words to it, and he had to spit all those words out, get the guys lined up, and then he'd complete the next play, and it might be a three-yard out, but it looked like football. It was like, oh, my God, the thing that we were missing the whole previous year with Joe Daly, Zach Taylor, you could see it in real time, real football, and there's about 500 of us coaches sitting in the the in the stadium that are getting to watch this thing and i'm like this is amazing and we get done and it's like zach taylor's a quarterback you never could do that if you have a green jersey on you can't do that if you're not playing tackle football in practice and that's how important practice is and when you hear that we're not tackling in practice then it starts to make me wonder well what are we doing with our offensive line in practice all last offseason and then if you can't if you can't physically, if you're Rayola and your hands are tied maybe with some of the things you physically want to do with your line, then at the very least, if you can get them to play better, smarter discipline-wise, like you said, Ken, the less penalties. How about do we do we remember in 2020 when we played at Northwestern the uh, the year of COVID? And in the first half alone, we had five linemen that each had a penalty on them in yeah. one half. I mean, it's like almost impossible. And it's the the dumb effery of it. You just you sit there and you go, come on, stop doing this to yourself. It's bad football. And and I get beat up with some big big ten. I'm getting worked up now, but I get beat up with some big ten people here where I'm like, I'm tired of hearing honestly, I'm tired of hearing people say the big ten such great coaching and such great this. Bad football loses football games. And mm-hmm. we've had bad football and we've lost to we've been swept by Colorado. They're terrible. We've been beat by Georgia Southern. They were terrible. We've been beat by Troy. We've been beat by, you know, Northern Illinois over the years. It's, it's not just big 10 stuff. And I've seen bad football from big 10 schools for cripe sakes. We got to fix us. And that's the harder thing. I think that's the thing that Trev really focused on in this whole coaching search is we got to fix yeah. us. That's hard. <laughs> no kidding. Hey, I've got a question for you on offensive line. And this yeah. has always been something that has bugged me since Frost was hired and Austin was our line coach. And I don't know if Ryola caters to this philosophy on offensive line or not, but Greg Austin talked about making sure all five guys could play all five positions. Mm-hmm. So they were interchangeable. If somebody goes down, somebody can slide over and play a spot. You've heard the phrase, obviously, jack of all trades, but a master of none. Mm-hmm. Do you think rule 
and Raiola are going to buy that same philosophy? Or are they going to implement, nah, our tackles are our tackles, our guards are our guards, and our center could be a guard, but more than likely we're going to go find a guy we know is going to be a center and make him center and center only. Because to me, when I hear this plug-and-play, jack-of-all-trades stuff, it bugs me because it just seems like guys have too much crap going through their mind. Okay, mm-hmm. I've got to play this technique, so I'm at left tackle versus right tackle. Zadiska said it. When he had to mm-hmm. slide back and forth between the two, he was one of the only guys in that 94 squad that could do it because for yep. some reason he was able to flip the switch and some of the other guys didn't have as easy a time with it. Um, so I don't know. What do you think? Do you think hopefully we're getting beyond that now and if we've got enough depth on that line here in the next year or two that you're going to see guys that specialize at one of those five spots? You know, I, I think it's important to find your top six or seven guys and I love having a sixth or seventh guy on the line, a swing player that can go from guard to guard kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I go back to the Mike Cavanaugh years of, of Riley, and it was like we found five dudes and five dudes only play, and they never. there's no rotation. I, I'm not a big fan of that. But there are certain body types that tend to fit well. You can kind of go – you can have a guard shift in the center a lot of times. I mean, and, and you can work guys in so that you have some kind of uh, – you know, immediate backup plan if somebody gets hurt in a game, things like that. There's also little things you can do to, to move a guy around. I, I think of the the 95 Orange Bowl. Um, they moved Brendan Stye from right guard to left guard to basically go up against um, uh, Warren Sapp at times, yep. head on. But that, that was so rare, and they did that for one instance. Generally speaking, generally speaking, I'm not a big fan of let's move guys and make sure you know all five positions. Mm-hmm. tackles know the tackle positions you know and and you might go left or right if you have to but god i really i hate moving guys from left to right side i think that's so tough on guys it, it's opposite everything you talk about muscle memory scott your Different. muscle memory Good is work. a left is a left tackle and then you move to right tackle and that's what we were doing last yeah. year completely unnecessarily i thought at times to yeah. Cor- to corcoran who is struggling enough in one position so let's make him play two or three positions like that's going to get you better so simplifying i did a whole thing on this back in like gosh back in october it was simplifying for that offensive line to where you're down to your your position play your position get good at this get a sixth or seventh guy identified that you can play so that you can do a little bit of rotation during a game just from a you know keeping guys fresh kind of thing that's what uh, the 94 line was you had the great pipeline but then it was dishman was the kind of the sixth guy and he'd come in and, and be able to swing out and play a tackle. And then they had Bill Humphreys that would come and play some center and, and they would just rotate a little bit like that. That was to me, I, I wouldn't get much more complicated than that. I would, you don't need to get to nine and 10 guys on the line. I mean, it's get, get your six to seven guys going, get them into their positions that they're going to play. And then, and then you practice them accordingly. You, you get physical, you do some one-on-ones, Ones versus ones. Uh, Osborne would do them on a lot of times midweek, and it, it would only be one period, maybe a 10-minute period of of some goal line, but it was a chance to get the pipeline out there against the Peter brothers and all that. And and when you get good and, you, and, and both sides get better and better day by day, eventually they're sitting there saying the best, the best team we're ever going up against is us in practice. So that, that goes back to what you're saying there, Scott. You don't want – you don't want the guy to get shocked when he goes into the game. And he's like, Oh, I haven't seen a guy like this in this setting where, you know, he's actually coming at me and I have to hit him now. You know, you don't want that to be something that he finds out in the first quarter in Minneapolis. He should have found that out months ago in Lincoln 
you know, going against the guys that, that we have. And so I hope we have a guy like Garrett Nelson come back. Right. And then imagine Garrett Nelson in practice getting to go up against, you know, Ben Hart or going up against Prohaska or whoever it is. That's one of the best players in the big 10 then that's coming against him. So, yep. so that old lineman mm-hmm. should be, Hey, if I can go up against Garrett in, in a real life setting, we should be able to do this against anyone that we're playing. Absolutely. I think that's the, that, that's the, the big goal. I, there's something I, I wanted to – this is the perfect time to do it. So it's the offseason. When, we when we were in the coaching search, and I didn't have the name. I'm, I'm not smart enough to say, hey, it's Matt Rule. But one of the things I, I thought was important, and this is from a historical standpoint, I thought the hire needed to be – we almost needed a Devaney kind of hire. And what I mean by that is Devaney came here after 20 years of losing. A lot of the same things I think that fans felt in 1961 – or things that fans feel right now, you know, gosh, I'll just take a, I'll just take a team. If you can get me to, to a bowl game, I'd be ecstatic. Right. I mean, fans <laughs> yeah. didn't have expectations of championships. And what Devaney did is he came here and I, I used the, the term at the time. It was like evangelical. He, he went around the state. He would go to Shatteron and McCook and Valentine and everywhere in between and stop at VFWs and, and, you know, and just hit up any place he could community centers and talk to fans and tell them how important it was that, all of you are part of this, that, you know, that Nebraska needs you. And, and it makes Husker fans, it made them feel good. Now, we hadn't won a damn game yet, but it was just, it was starting to <laughs> rebuild the, the, the pride and get up there. And we can do this here at Nebraska because mm-hmm. a lot of people didn't think that they could. Now, he had to back it up. He had to back it up in that first season. And yep. they did. They went nine and two and they beat a very beatable Michigan team on the road that year. Um, a very early win that uh, that helped give him some momentum early on, but but it was this evangelical kind of thing. I didn't know Matt Rule from anything, honestly. I didn't know anything about him until we started seeing. Really, Ken, the day that you and Wanda and I were sitting there watching the, the press conference, and I'm really listening to him for the first time talk, and I'm like, that's exactly without knowing anything about his X's and O's. And I'm a huge X's and O's guy. Without knowing anything about him. I was like, that guy is going to start making he, – he's going to say the right things to get people feeling good. He's going to have a very successful offseason of just getting people to, to, to feel right. And I was at the, the basketball game last weekend where he comes in there and talks at halftime and talks about – says all the right things. Now, the skepticism in all of us is that we've heard this before, although I don't think we've heard it the way he says it. But, but the point is I think that he's going to do – he's going to win – on getting people to feel good about it again, to feel good about being a Husker fan. And he's not going to embarrass us with, with the, some of the dumb things maybe that we've, we've had off the field in the past. I think he's going to, he's going to help get people united around it. And then it's going to be about wins and losses on the season. That's it. You know, right. Right. That's it. I mean, you know, he can say all the greatest things in the world and then you go one in 10, one in 11, you know, whatever his first seasons were at those other places. That would be a problem. It'd be really hard, I think, to start off like that. I think we we yeah. need to show some early success. And I don't, I'm not trying to throw out an exact number yet what that is, but I think it's important for him to come out and and you said, um, Scott, you said more discipline and consistency. We need to see that. We need to see that right away. That's an expectation I have is more discipline and consistency. And the challenge is if you're showing more discipline and consistency, probably should win some games. Yes, sir. I mean, a byproduct of that, a byproduct, I mean, it sounds so stupid, but a byproduct of playing more disciplined and being more physical 
is winning football games, but yeah. it's it's no one wants to say that right now. You know, what I mean, no one wants to say, "Hey, we're going to go seven and five. We're going to go eight and four. No, I I don't even want to say because like why? We've said it so many other off seasons, and then it, it bites you. But it's like, so let's not talk record. Let's just talk being more disciplined and more consistent. The thing that Trev said. Let's not talk about winning championships. Let's talk about doing the things that win championships. If we do those things, I mean, there's a. I, I don't put ceilings on this program. I just don't just but start yeah. doing things right. Start tackling in practice, mm-hmm. start hitting, start doing the things that Husker football has always been about. When the hell did it stop being about being the most physical team in football? And how are you the most physical football team? If you are not hitting, if you're putting green jerseys on guys, if you're not tackling, you're not being the most physical team. And when defensive coordinators like Mark Banker and we lose to Iowa and he sits there and goes, they must have blood baths in practice. How the hell does that happen? We used to. <laughs> that used it to be us. It drives you crazy. That so, used to be us. We're, we're players from the 90s I've interacted with many times, and I know people yeah. hate to hear people reference the 90s. But they said practice was the toughest game we ever played, was scrimmage in practice. we get to the games, and people were scared to play us, and we knew it, and it was yep. easy. It was easy. Um, so, uh, you know, <clears throat> something crossed my mind as you were speaking, to, uh, honking, and just disappeared. Old man brain just <laughs> go up into the ether somewhere. Um, but yeah, physical practices, getting back to doing what Nebraska. Oh, you, you mentioned Matt Rule. You didn't know much about him. I've mm-hmm. been casually following him since his temple days. I used to, as a truck driver, of course, I had serious satellite radio for a long, long time because that was how I was able to listen to the football games. I was back before YouTube TV and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. so that was how I listened to the games. Well, I got hooked on ESPN radio and then it became ESPN U radio or whatever it was. Chris Childers was one of the hosts on ESPN radio, huge fan of Matt rule, became friends with him. He'd have him on his show every week when he was at temple. And uh, I became a fan of him as well. Just listening to him talk, listen to him say all the things he just said at that press conference that we saw. I'm like, yep, that's the guy I remember. And then I remember hearing about him going to Baylor and I kind of kept an eye on, I'm like, Ooh, God, one in 11. That's pretty gnarly, but I knew what was coming out of the Art Bryles thing. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you knew, he's one overtime session away from going to the freaking playoff, uh, you know, in 2000 or 2019. So I've mm-hmm. known about him. What I didn't remember was that he was the son of a preacher, but he always struck me as a guy that just could speak so clearly and so succinctly. And he sounded, it was kind of a religious experience, right? Which it yeah. definitely was. Uh, but there's no doubt that he absolutely is. He's got a conviction about who he is as a coach and what he wants to accomplish as a coach. And that's why, while many of the hires that he's made, and we kind of tore him to pieces on our last show with the Cuscast. Well, at least they did, and I got to listen. It was kind of fun. <laughs> um, but d- d- even me, I'm like, Terrence Knighton, he's basically got zero big-time college football coaching experience, mm. zero coaching experience really at an upper level but he knows what it takes to win in the NFL. He's done it, did it for seven years for a few different teams. So he understands what it looks like and what a defensive line that works well together looks like. So I'm, I'm hopeful. And mm-hmm. obviously he fits the rule blueprint for what he wants for a line of scrimmage coach. So I'm in trust rule mode. That's, that's where I'm at. I'm trust rule and we'll see what happens. We'll see yeah. what happens. Uh, like you said, tackle in practice, stay physical. I agree with you 100%. Pull them freaking green jerseys off those quarterbacks and let them sons of guns get hit whenever they go live. 
if, if they're going to have a competition, you got to yeah. you, you got to play football. And you want to know th- what one guy's going to do when the bullets are flying and he's getting hit dead in the chest by a dude coming at him at 100 miles an hour. And is he going to make that throw when he needs to, or is he going to pull the ball down and juke somebody and make it, make a play? That's the Zach Taylor scrimmage. You know, you don't learn about Zach Taylor. If we had waited until the first week of the season or the, you know, whatever, waited two or three games for Joe Daly to, 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 you know, struggle and then throw Taylor in. Now you can't wait for that. We can't wait until Minnesota on a Thursday night in August to figure these things out either. And there are so many ways to figure this stuff out long before you get there. I do think with the coaching staff, I'm intrigued. The coordinators are guys that we, this, I don't think they get enough credit for being a splashy enough hire, but I, we got two sitting power five coordinators to come mm-hmm. here, you know, and, and it's, it's Syracuse and it's South Carolina. Um, and uh, what's funny is that, you know, a lot of people will say, hey, Nebraska, know your place. You're not a big blue blood or blah, blah, blah anymore. Okay, well, then we just took the guys from Syracuse and South Carolina. Well, it's just Syracuse and South Carolina. Oh, well, wait a second. You can't have it both ways. You know, we got power five guys that are on the up and up that are, that are successful dudes. So that's where I think we're going to really need to rely on some of that, that experience. Some of the position coaches are young, but that's also exactly what he said he wanted. And with a $7 million pool, which we may or may not spend it all, I have no idea yet. We haven't hired everybody yet. Um, he's had the opportunity to hire who he wants. And he's making, no one's forcing him to hire Rayola as an example. Mm-hmm. He, Coach Rule, you know, interviewed other coaches, probably guys that had much more experience. And he he came to the conclusion that, that Rayola is the guy that he wanted. Mm-hmm. If, if we think he's a good coach, I, I think Rule's a good coach. I think he's a good identifier of talent. If we think he's a good coach, there's a part of me, and this is so tough because I do a damn podcast and all I do is talk, but <laughs> part of this is like I almost need to just trust. I, I'm not going to trust in him because Dave will beat me up if I say trust in, trust in Trev, trust in this. But I'm going to trust that Rule knows what he's doing and that he made the choice to hire Rayola. He didn't have to, and he, he did. He could have hired somebody else. He could have hired someone with more experience. He could have hired someone that would cost an extra $500,000 probably. Mm-hmm. He chose yeah. Rayola, and so if I think that Ray, if I think that Rule knows what he's doing, I'm going to trust that. I'm going to trust that he makes good decisions and and, and knows what he wants because he's done this long enough as, as a coach. That that part I think is <laughs> on his trust <laughs> issues. That's, I love you, Rob. Um, Rob Scott, we haven't given you a chance to talk in a bit. Yeah, Scott, so, I'll, I'll, I'll let you go, and, th- and then we'll probably get to the parting shots after that. So, oh, you're I love good. You I was I was trying to find a piece of information that you you uh, you kind of triggered something in my mind that I was <laughs> like, ooh, that makes me think of that. That makes me think of that. And and yes, there we go. Found it. All right, we're good. Um, okay, so. Yes, I'm going to be I'm I am more of the more of the pessimistic side of things as I'm sure you've heard before. Mm-hmm. Um but I but for the sake of of continuity and and um kind of following the vibe, you know, I I do also see the the plus sides of some of these things. Um I mean, law of averages tells me that, you know, a third of these coaches that we've got coming in are not going to work out. Um, at least not in the first few years, they'll, they'll probably be packing their bags and getting out of here. Don't know which ones those are going to be, but 
knowing the way that Husker fandom works, the guys that we're probably high on are the ones that are probably going to end up tanking and the ones that we are questioning and shrugging our shoulders and going, why did you make that decision? Maybe they're the ones who make us blow away any expectations we could have ever set up for them. So what I think is interesting about these coaches is that what Matt Rule has essentially done is put all of his chips in on a person who is willing to stand by his philosophy and trusting in himself as an individual coach to be able to coach his philosophy versus somebody who's just got a beautiful big track record that might not Mm -hmm. actually match with Matt Rule's philosophy. Cause it's like, yeah, you can, you can grab a bunch of guys that are super successful at Georgia or UCLA or LSU or Texas A&M, you know, just start grabbing guys that are successful in their individualized uh, specialties and do all of their philosophies match. No, they don't. And now you've just got a, a gaggle F of, of all sorts of different conflicting mm-hmm. philosophies that are all converging in a, in a very unnatural way. And if there's anything that I I could possibly conjure up that makes any sort of sense about any of these coaching hires is that there is some continuity with these philosophies. And I think my dad said something in the uh, in the in our uh, you know uh, our Husker form, our little Husker fan hangout type thing. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just now blanking on what we call it. My apologies, Dad. Uh, <laughs> Which one? We've got two of them. <laughs> We've got the big red round table and then Husker. Big red round out. table. Okay. Big red round table. That's what it was. So apologies. Um, my dad made a, a good comment. It's like, if you can develop players, you can also develop coaches. I mean, sure. there's 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 no reason why that skill can't translate in in that regard. And the quote that I was thinking of was, Pursue something that's meaningful, not expedient. And I think one of the things that that Husker fans have found themselves being in is is a a desire for expedience. We want this now. Give it to me now. I experienced Mm -hmm. amazing things for three decades straight, and I want this stuff to change immediately. Give it to me now. I don't care what it looks like. And I'm, I'm guilty. I've been that way. Like, I don't care what you do. Give me Urban Meyer, like whatever. Um, but at the same time, it's like that's an expedient desire, which is not meaningful in any stre- by any stretch of the imagination. And so if there's anything that I can look at with all of these coaches and be like, mm-hmm. all right, I think we've got something going on here, is all of their philosophies probably line up. And it might not work right away, but they're like you said, Honky, and like we've said, mm-hmm. and, and I think anybody worth their salt could possibly say – you can't build the pyramid of Giza without laying the foundation first. And then yeah. you have to repeat that process over and over and over and over again until you build something great. And so I think the philosophy, the philosophical standpoint, that's got to come first. That's the foundation. Yeah. Because, I mean, you go to any group of people. I mean, the philosophy of Husker fans is our philosophy is I'm a Husker fan. Well, you're not going to get along with somebody who's an Alabama fan, maybe cordially, but our philosophy of what makes us a fan about a team is completely different because, I mean, that's what separates us tribally speaking. So it's like, let's get coaches that are on the same page and we can build off of that. And so yeah. that's that's my 
optimistic standpoint. Don't know if it'll actually play out. Like I said, law of averages tells me that yeah. in three years, a third of our staff isn't going to be here anymore. So that's, that's what I expect, but that means that two thirds did it right. You know, like I've, whatever that looks like, I mean, that's better than nothing. <laughs> that that can be, look, you know, we all individually, we all have this idea of how we want it to look. And this is the challenge. I'm going to challenge myself on this too. You know, I, I want to see option football, right? Hey, that's what I want to see, but that doesn't mean that the, it's the only way to get there. And I think some people go into these coaching things thinking, well, the only way that we can do is we have to have a guy that used to be a head. We have to hire a former head coach as a coordinator. We have to hire a guy that has so much pro experience, so, so much P5 experience. There's no one way to do this. The, the only thing, Rule has to be able to build it the way that he wants to. And I can go historically with that. You know, Devaney, when he came here, he brought his entire staff from Wyoming pretty much. There wasn't a lot of P5 experience. Now, someone's going to say that's 1962, honk. He stopped living way, way, way back in the past. Okay, fine. <laughs> Coach Osborne then, fast forward to the 70s and to the 80s. He's hiring guys like Dan Young and Milt Teneper and Frank Solich who have only high school experience. And those mm-hmm. guys went on to be outstanding coaches. Bo Pelini, go fast forward to 2003 as he's getting hired into here. And um, I went and watched his uh, his uh, speech at the, the coaches clinic when he was coming in to be the defensive coordinator. And he went straight from high school, coaching high school in Ohio, straight to the 49ers as an assistant coach, but it quickly moved up the ranks to eventually becoming a defense you know, a linebackers coach with the, the mm-hmm. Packers. And then straight here, no P five experience. Cause mm-hmm. he was all out of the pros. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and they're, they're all different. They're all different ways. And, or I could say, Hey, make a big splash higher. Let's go get a Broyles award winner. That's uh, maybe been a, has head coaching experience. Let's get him in as a coordinator. Cause I just said, Bob Diaco. That's exactly what his, his credentials were. But some people swear by we have to have a guy that has head coaching experience and Broyles guy. I don't – there's no one right way. Rule has to find the right way that's going to work for him. In his fans, I hope what we do in the supporting of Rule is that we allow him at least a little bit of the grace and the freedom and flexibility to do what he feels is right. And he, he's probably going to make some mistakes along the way, but at least that we allow him – the chance to build it the way that he wants to build it. And so instead of looking at, at Rayola and saying, why in the hell did you keep Rayola? And why didn't you hire this guy? Maybe it's, you know what, this is what he felt was the right hire at the right time. It made sense to him. It fit with what he was going for. And, and we'll find out, we're going to find out in a year and two and three, you know, uh, where the mistakes are made and hopefully, you know, more good things, more good decisions were made than poor, but that's it. That's the hope. That's the hope every fan base has. Um, and, and it's not trying to predict too much. I, I still love going back to uh, some Tennessee tweets from January of just last year, uh, not yeah. even two years ago. And people are like, who and why in the hell did we hire Josh, Josh Heupel? Are you, Heupel? Are you kidding me? The guy's going to get destroyed <laughs> by Alabama and all that. And it, it's interesting just two years later, you know, so, you know, sometimes you can be surprised and I hope we are. Well, I, I, what I'm not surprised by is that, it's gone an hour and 46 minutes now and I've enjoyed every second with this. And I've wanted to do this with you guys for a long time. So I'm glad, um, I'm glad yes, even though we waited, it's been great to kick off season two of the forum. Um, I do a lot of talking sometimes. I apologize for that, but I want to make sure that you guys get to talk here at the end and we're going to go to our parting shots. I'm going to let you guys take us out. And uh, you know what? I'll let be between you two, you decide who goes first and who goes last with the parting shots and take your time, talk as much as you want. Well, I'll go first real quick. Um, for all the the fans out there of 
Carolina Panthers, as well as some doubting Husker fans and, and other people across college football and the pros who are saying Nebraska has just got snookered by a uh, used car salesman who sounds like a preacher in the hiring of Matt Rule. Let me remind you that the overall record for the entire history of the Carolina Panthers professional football team is 209 wins, 223 losses. Trust me, folks, it wasn't Matt Rule's problem. End of story. We hired the right guy. Get behind him. The line of scrimmage. Fix it first. Get physical every single day in the practice. Take off the damn green jerseys like Matt Honky just said. <laughs> Maybe there'll be some bumps and bruises, but I tell you what, those kids will be ready to take hits in the live games if they start taking them from their own team, especially at quarterback. So that's my parting shot. Ooh, man. I'm ready to run through the wall. Scott, <laughs> take us out of here, buddy. All right, so it is now winter time, truly winter time. We're looking at single-digit temperatures coming up here next week if you live in the 402 area. If you don't, I hope you live in Florida or Texas or California or wherever is warm right now because it is not going to be pretty. But what I do have to say is that with the typical uh, post-season partum depression that us Husker fans uh tend to have i would call it seasonal depression um once again another double entendre um go outside go outside get some vitamin d um <laughs> we're gonna you know people are gonna get the flu people are gonna get sick and and us as husker fans you know like we're already sick and tired as it is so you know my, why not go outside collect some vitamin d build your immune system and uh eat good food and get ready for this off season. Um, well, I guess we're in the off season, but get ready for the spring season. We got a date, April twenty second. Get yourself a good, good, healthy immune system for the spring game because we are going to need it. And yes, like I said, eat good food and spend time with the ones you love. Absolutely, especially with the holidays coming up here. Well, I want to thank you guys so much um, on YouTube here for the. If you're coming back later to rewatch this, because I, I know these shows go a little long. I've been told that, but I, I don't care. When the conversation's good, they can go as long as they need. I'm going to chapter this up. So uh, I'll chapter it by topic so that um, people can easily go from question one to question two. And even within question four, I probably will chapter it up just by, you know, what we're, if we're talking about the <laughs> O-line or whatever, so that people can easily go through here. Because this is, we had a lot of good stuff here. I don't want people to be intimidated by saying an hour and 50 minutes. It's a lot of good stuff and and come back multiple times, but uh, I really appreciate it. I want to give a, a plug for the next week's show here. Um, Adam Witchell, the, the co-owner at the, the Newman Grove City Cafe, he's going to be on here. Uh, they do a great job on Twitter. They're an awesome follow. And so it's going to be fun talking with Adam like it's been fun talking with you guys. Um, before we take off, I want you guys to, to give a plug one more time for Generation Red. Tell everyone where they can hear you and where they can find you on on social and all that. Well, if you want to follow the podcast, it's at Genred Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Um, please go to YouTube if you want to see our past content. Hit subscribe. If you want to get the future stuff, make sure you ring that bell. And then Generation Red on your favorite podcast app. Any audio for any show that we put out on YouTube will drop on our podcast app the next morning by 8 a.m. So, yeah, Genred Pod on, on Twitter. And Scott's got a, got a handle out there, too, to follow. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Scott Genred Pod. That is Scott with two T's. The second one is silent. So, you know, don't get that confused. 
Um, you can follow me there. All sports, all dad jokes. Clearly, if you watch the beginning of this episode, I also just randomly post memes that make no sense and zero context to them. So if you want to get a good laugh or at least just stay out of politics or any of those controversial topics, like give me a follow and, and I can promise you that you will only see goofy, goofy goodness. So, yep, you can follow me at Scott Genredpod. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much, you know, Ken and Scott. Thank you for, for joining us. Thank you, Nick and Bill and Jamie and Marty and all the people that were commenting in there during the uh, during the episode. Really appreciate yeah. everyone that's been following along. That's awesome. Um, we really appreciate it. And so if you like this, give it a like. Give us a subscribe as well. Um, but until next time, you could be the next one to join us on the forum. Sports Network Production.